Good morning. You're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. Also streaming live on newhavenindependent.org. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka, where we look at national issues from a local level through a lens of diversity. I want to thank you for joining me this morning, and I want to invite you to sit back and listen to the show. So today's show is a kind of cross-cast of a discussion that I had the other day on my Facebook page um, with psychiatrist Dr. Farah Rahim about Muslim women and mental health. Of course, it's something that I think is also crossing over many different ethnicities and religions, and it was a very enlightening conversation about how do we get past the stigma of mental health? How do we know when mental health is an issue for us or for our children? And when and how do we seek help? So I want to invite you to sit back, listen, and enjoy. And let's have a conversation. You can tweet me, Facebook me, all after the show by using the hashtag MWMRadio. And I invite you to continue the conversation or start one in your community because it's something that we really need to talk about so that we can bring it to the forefront and deal with it. Mental health should not be a stigma. It should be something that we consider is an illness like every other illness and it deserves treatment and those with it deserve respect and they deserve care and consideration. So here we are with Dr. Farah Rahim talking about Muslim women and mental health. Assalamu alaikum. This is Mubaraka and I'm here with Dr. Farah Rahim and we are getting ready to have some real talk as I promised about Muslim women and mental health. So I want you to go grab your coffee, grab your tea, and let's have a conversation. Um, feel free to ask questions by typing them in the comment if you uh, would like, if you have any specific questions that we can answer, and we'll, we'll try to get to them. So I'm going to do a couple of things. I have my computer here so that I can see your questions. Um, and we are going live. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Thank you for inviting me. It's very exciting awesome. for me. So welcome to everyone watching. So, um, the, so let me tell you a little bit about why I decided to do this. So one of the, um, a few weeks ago, I participated in a health chat with um, the United States Health Surveillance Branch. I didn't know they existed, but apparently they did. <laughs> so they really focus on uh, um, looking at the health of the United States and, um, and developing advocacy around that. And so one of them, I tweeted a lot of things, but one of the things that, seems to re that seemed to resonate, it, resonate with people was my tweet about mental health. So um, the tweet that I put out was that when my daughter um, was uh, diagnosed with depression that I had to tell myself it didn't make me a bad mom and that, and we went and got her help. And I think that even among my own family and, and I think it one, I have, I have a little moment of uh, vulnerability here, is it was the first time I actually ever said it out loud to anybody who was not family because even though I know there's no, um, for me, it, it, you know, 
it didn't mean that it was a bad mom or she wasn't a good Muslim or anything like that. It was a, um, there's a stigma to it. Like, <laughs> you, 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 you know other people don't look at it in the same way. And so I realized that actually when I put the tweet out, I was like, oh, did I do that? <laughs> did I just say that out loud? I did. Um, but it, it resonated with people. Um, we, in our family, we've never really dealt with a mental health issue. So it was a lot of researching on my behalf. Um, but I think that it's something, you know, after having conversations after that tweet, I think it's something that uh, a lot of people are dealing with. And, uh, and like me, we just don't say out loud. So I think that it's an important conversation um, now I see the importance of having the conversation out loud. So one of the things that I was looking at um, when I was doing my research for, uh, for this is how prevalent mental health is just in America, period, particularly with depression and anxiety. So I thought that we would start there because that seemed to be a, um, it's huge. So, so my first question is, what is depression and like is there a difference between kind of like being depressed or i'm sad i've gone through a divorce or my kid just got diagnosed with an illness or so what's the difference between that well i think that's a really important question um not just to know academically but to to, to monitor our own selves you know so we can we can stay in touch with our own our own feelings and notice our own patterns for me, they have definitions, and we will get into that. But for me, the most, the most important indicator is actually how we function, right? So, so if sadness, everybody gets sad, everybody gets happy. We're supposed to have changes in moods. That's normal. That's the human experience. Um, the the biggest issue, the biggest indicator, red flag, is when you're so sad. Um, that you're not able to function in your normal capacities, whether it be at work, you're not able to pay attention, making lots of mistakes over periods of long period of time. So clinically, the definition is over at least two weeks. Uh, to be honest though, in dealing with different people, you come to appreciate that everybody is really distinct. And so these, the research and the definitions are helpful for research and for, for getting a ballpark idea of how long depression can start or how long it is before we can notice that oh perhaps I'm depressed but the truth is that every person is different so we have to know ourselves but clinically though the definition is for at least two weeks um, you notice certain symptoms so the, there are two that one or the other has to be there which is persistent sad mood or irritability irritability being more common in children and adolescents or um, loss of interest in pleasurable activities or, or loss of pleasure in those activities. So for instance, if I really like to go to the movies, and usually that's my thing, you know, every weekend I go to the movies with my friends and, and I love it. And then all of a sudden you start noticing in the context of you being um, stressed, perhaps somebody passed away or, or perhaps something has happened in your life that's made you more distressed. You notice that you, you do go to the movies, but it's more like it's a drag to go there. You, it takes so much effort. When you go, you don't really enjoy it. It's kind of, you're kind of numb. Like if you don't even feel happy doing it, you just kind of do it because you used to do it. And then eventually you just don't do it because it's such a hassle. You know, so that, that kind of pattern of behavior over the course of, of 
time of at least two weeks. And so either having that diminished interest in activity and pleasure in activities or having persistent sad mood, those either of those have to be there. And then there are other symptoms that can also accompany it, like low appetite, um, sleep abnormalities. Some people sleep more, some people sleep less. I said low appetite, but actually it's low appetite or increased appetite. Some people eat a lot more, like carb craving. Mm -hmm. So eat a lot more or just not have an appetite. Sleep a lot less or sleep a lot more. Um, just changes in those patterns, those general bodily functions. Um, difficulty concentrating on things. Your mind is distracted or it's just very hard to concentrate. Slowness of thinking. You used to be fast with numbers and remembering people's phone numbers or names and, and then all of a sudden you just can't remember it as much. Mm. Um, concentration, appetite, psychomotor retardation. Some people start to think about uh, killing themselves or not, just not wanting to be around. So I think particularly for Muslims, this is one, one topic that is really kind of faux pas, like you don't talk about that. Um, even when I have my Muslim patients, I'm a bit cautious about how I bring it up, you know, because you don't want to offend people because it's a big, um, it's a huge uh, religious kind of stigma against even considering that you might want to kill yourself. But the truth is, is even people who don't have depression, um, who are just normal functioning human beings, have thoughts about well, what would happen if I weren't here? You know, like we, it's just, it, it happens to even people who aren't aren't diseased or don't have a, a clinical condition. So it is just part of the human experience to think about what would it be like if I weren't here? But the issue is when you start to think about it in a serious way where you're thinking about actually taking your own life or it's such a persistent thought that lasts at least two weeks um, where it really just occupies your mind quite a bit, right? So, so a lot of these things, low appetite, not sleeping well, if they only last a short period of time and they don't predominate in your life and don't substantially affect your functioning, it's just human experience and it's not really something um, that you necessarily need treatment for or you need to pay attention to as much. Um, but, but once it starts to predominate and affect the way you, you function, affect your thoughts, and that is really something that has to be paid attention to. What is the, so what, you mentioned irritability with um, children and teenagers. So that's an easy one for parents to miss, especially for teenagers. Oh yeah. As a parent of a teenager. You're <laughs> just like, okay, they're a teenager. <laughs> so how does a parent uh, what what should a parent look for in their kids? Because one of the one of the issues. So uh, um, another I, people know I tell a lot of my business. <laughs> I think what I'm telling stuff. I think that's the best way for me to relate to it is that you know when I did have an experience with my kids being bullied at school, I didn't know until after you know it was a, um, it was. It, it had escalated mm -hmm. and once I went and started looking at stuff that they were writing down I found out that it had been going on for a long time but I there to me there was no symptoms that they were having such a hard time in school and that was before this this was like five years ago before we it became um, you know as prevalent as it is now for Muslim kids to be bullied so prevalent in fact that the United States government just the White House just announced that they're actually going to be tracking religious bullying specifically for Muslim children and that's significant um, that one that 
it's great that they're doing it, but two, the fact that it's so incredibly prevalent that the White House wants to track it. So that's amazing in itself. Um, so what, what do parents need to look for? Because kids don't necessarily want to come home. I was having a conversation with a parent the other day and she was saying how, you know, when her kid gets bullied and comes home and say something, she says, well, I'm going to call the school. And she's like, no, 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 you're making a big deal out of it. Don't call because the kid is embarrassed. They don't want to be embarrassed or to get worse at school. Mm -hmm. So they may not even tell the parent because they're afraid that it's going to, you know, you know, have them stick out, but what are some of the things should a parent look for? That's a really tough question. Yeah, I don't know that I have a straight answer for that one because every child is different. You know, some kids when they when they have stress, keep it all inside, you can't tell what's going on, it's all bottled up. Other kids they'll do things, like they'll act out in a certain way and you'll know that's different. So you know there's something going on. Um, and so every every child really has a different temperament. So I think that that job of being a parent and and trying to figure out anything that's going on in your child's life at all is a very difficult one. Um, so, to be honest with you, I think to I think one way to to prophylactically so prophylactically being like one way to preventatively do this would be regular conversations about what's going on and in regular conversations that's not in a um, Kind of interrogative fashion you know right. just like how's it going uh you know and then things you if, if there's physical abuse going on then you you put you can notice it's possible to notice things like mm -hmm. scars hopefully that's not it's, it hasn't gotten to that level but there is that is one thing you could look for um but to be honest with you it's it's a very tough thing to do just if you notice though for instance that your child is more sullen or more withdrawn or, or acting out, like getting in trouble more at school, mm -hmm. you know, grades aren't good. So again, this kind of functioning mm. isn't functioning in the same way, whether it's socially at home, um, socially at school, and in, in the school academically itself, these changes in functioning can mm. be indicators that there's something else going on. Okay. But, but that's so non-specific. It could be so much as they're actually physically sick to maybe they're getting bullied at school. Right, mm -hmm. so it's a tricky subject. There's no straight answer to that other okay. than open communication and um, fostering a kind of open relationship. Yeah. Where, where, and this, I'm gonna say this is probably a key point where the open relationship isn't you hearing about something and you getting really involved in it. <laughs> it's more like it's more like you listen, you figure out what your role best would be in this situation. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, because otherwise that just shuts down everything, right? When you're you're too involved, right? right? But we do want to be involved with our kids, so. You, you know, a, a really interesting. This is just a side note. It, it reminded me of something that I adopted. See, I'm always on Facebook, and so and I actually try to implement stuff that I that I find on Facebook. But you know, re retrospectively, I I think what actually increased or helped me communicate better with my now 16 year old is. Last year, I read a post of like 50 things a parent can ask a kid instead of how is your day. And I actually started doing that. And I, since we've been doing that, now we he's a great kid and we've communicated before, but I think that it increased. So instead of saying how's your day, I will make up weird stuff to ask him like, so who had the same color shirt that you had on today? <laughs> and he's like, what? I'm like, so, you know, what? 
what kind thing did you do for somebody today? Or I'll just ask him like random questions instead of how was your day? Yeah. And it starts him talking and I find that uh, he just he just starts spilling after that. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. well, such and such had the same shirt on, but guess what such and such did? And guess what this teacher said? Yeah. And so I think that, that what you said is really important that it's not always kind of like, so how was your day? Did anything go wrong today? You know, just having, making them feel like they can talk to you about anything. Yeah. And I also say that that's the advantage of having more than one kid because you kind of like learn from the previous ones. Okay, I need him to be able to talk to me. How can I do this one better? It's almost like you get a do-over. <laughs> almost, not exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's very true. So the, the open relationship, and this will, this will help not just with social bullying, but anything yeah, you know, you know true. anything like as things come up in their lives they feel like they're able to talk to you mm -hmm. but again it's important to like you're talking about to not have it be something surveillance oriented right because no child wants <laughs> especially to for teenagers yeah and it, it's actually a very difficult um, struggle that that our kids have to go through in terms of and that we went through too it's you you're trying to establish your independence right mm -hmm. and so then that it makes sense that you want to handle on your own because because it the parent, the parental role, we're used to being involved, right? Mm -hmm. From we're completely in charge of nursing them, of cleaning them, everything, absolutely everything. And then we're gradually transitioning to give them more independence. Mm -hmm. So they're also gradually figuring out how to be more independent. Mm -hmm. And if we, sometimes sometimes it's hard for us to gauge how, how involved we're supposed to be. So if we decide, like we don't know how much independence to give them, we might jump on things to do them earlier for them. And so then they might say, oh, I'm just not gonna tell her because then, <laughs> then you know how you know what's gonna happen. Right. And so then it's kind of like this teeter-tot, like oh, how much do yes, I wanna get is. involved versus how much do I wanna tell her, how much do I want her to be involved, Whatever, you know, just kind of this thing. And right. that's just part of the human growth experience. Yeah. We all grew, went through it with our, fam our parents and our families and our kids are going through it too. And it's a struggle for them. It's, it may not be that they necessarily don't wanna tell you, but it may be that they, they maybe think this is something they can do on their own. Right. And then you you find out about it as it's escalated just because they realize, whoa, this is too big for me. Right. You know, I need to involve somebody else. So it's a it's a tough it's a tough role for both people to figure right. out how involved to be, how much to tell. It's hard. Right. What is um so let's let's switch a little bit. Anxiety. Mm -hmm. Now I actually am a little unclear as to what anxiety is, but I'm, I often hear it, it's almost like depression and anxiety go together. I hear yeah. people say both of them at the same time, but when is anxiety like a problem? Yeah, um, you know, I think it would, This the answer to this question, they have a definition, but the answer that you'll get will probably vary depending on who you speak to as a psychiatrist. So my experience has been, when I hear about anxiety, I think about fear. I think, I like to, so they have definitions and I can read them over and we can look them up, but okay, well actually let's start with the reading of the definition. It's probably gonna be easier and then I can tell you my, my take on it. So there are different types of anxiety disorders. There, anxiety is like an umbrella term that describes various different types of disorders, including things like PTSD, social anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder. They have all of these different names for anxiety, right? So what I did was one very common one is generalized anxiety disorder. So I'll just talk a little bit about that. Um, so generalized anxiety disorder, it tends to be more prevalent among women. And it, the definition, 
excuse me, the definition of it is um, persistent and excessive fear, uh, worry about everyday items, about everyday things, things like, oh, did, did I lock the door? Did I, did I turn this off? Did I do this? Did I do this? And that's, that's part of normal everyday. You always want to kind of check in with yourself to see what you did. But, but this is like, it, it overarches, it kind of takes over. Even if you're trying to think about something else, even if you're trying to do something else, it's this kind of like intrusive, persistent worrying about everyday affairs. And it also has associated with it some physical, some physical symptoms. So for some people, it doesn't have to have all of these physical symptoms. This is more like a, a list of things that could happen. So things like being easily fatigued, um, very difficulty with sleep, um, kind of restless feeling, muscle tension, where you're so fatigued, lots of muscle tension, um, difficulty concentrating. So if you're anxious, you're constantly thinking about other things. So your thought energy is a little bit dispersed. It's hard to then take it and focus it on something. Uh, so these are common symptoms seen in people who have generalized anxiety disorder. Children can also have generalized anxiety disorder. Um, so there is a big crossover between anxiety and depression. Just there's a huge, what they call um, comorbidity. So that means that they can occur together easily. Uh, high, high percentages of crossing over between the two. Okay, so that's right. why I hear both of them mentioned together. a lot. Yeah. Okay. So this is the more formal definition that I've presented to you. My experience has been that anxiety is excessive fear. Right, excessive fear, and that can that can pretty much result uh, from any like whether if you're depressed, if you're if you have some other things going, excessive fear to the point where it pervades your life, okay. right, and it affects your bodily functions like sleeping, your muscle contractions, and it also affects your thought processes. Okay. And so then, um, you know, there are various kinds of interventions that people have for depression and for anxiety, and. I think that those are important. I also think it's important to address the underlying issue of what is it you're afraid of? <laughs> you know, so so to do to do kind of both, to, to seek out help, but to also look at the underlying reason that you've been faced with this situation that you're so afraid and, and addressing it. So one of the one of the things that I think about um, immediately um, is uh, what's going on, right? In in the news and in the media and the violence against Muslims, the, the verbal attacks that Muslims face. And it's something that is on all of our minds a lot. Mm -hmm. And when do, when does it, and this is also just a part of living in America, right? Or, you know, in Europe as well, they're having a lot of issues, um, anti-Islamic bigotry there. Um, when, as Muslims that are faced with this, when do we know that it's time to get help? Even though we joke and we say Facebook is therapy, it's not really therapy. <laughs> you do know that, right? <laughs> Sometimes you actually need a therapist. <laughs> so, because it's something that we think about on a daily basis. You can't go, you know, I got rid of cable and I don't watch the news, but Every time I open my Facebook feed, every time I look at my Twitter feed, there's something there. Even if it's just, and you know, what's trending and I make a mistake and click on it, right? So how do we, when, when do we say, okay, this is a healthy concern about what's going on versus, okay, this is a problem for me? That's a tough question, but I'm, I really think it has to do with the functioning piece, right? I think that, that at this particular point in, in history, really, it's a, it's a historic period, uh, Muslims are being 
asked to really handle a lot, you know? Like like not just the everyday stuff that the normal people have to handle, but but we're being asked to to be to, to take on the social discrimination and and to child discrimination and on top of all of the other normal life stuff, we're really being asked by God to to be kind of more, you know, to take much more. And uh, it's 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 been quite challenging. So people have done things like like not watch the news and, and you know we've a lot of individuals have tried to find their own way, their own method to manage this and some of it is Facebook and and I actually highly recommend things that are group oriented in, in particular um, in this particular time right so the group can be extremely protective mm. and I, I I can't say for sure I haven't done a study on this but just from what I've seen anecdotally um, there have been there's been a rise in in Muslim group work whether mm. it's groups of women getting together regularly and talking groups of kids hanging out more kind of congealing around the Islamic identity because one positive that comes out of all of this discrimination is it really makes people um, work together, mm. right? Because there's so much negative energy coming from the outside, mm. it really causes our community to have to work together mm. with each other in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have been, excuse me, they wouldn't have been pushed to do otherwise. Um, so I think that the group therapies are actually quite profound in this, in this regard. So when do we know that it's a problem? It's when it's a problem for you, right? When it's preventing you from going out to job interviews and taking them because you're afraid of what people are gonna say about your scarf or about the fact that you have a beard or about what your name is or, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the point where it prevents you from doing your thing, right? It prevents your kids from going to school. Um, it prevents, when it stops allowing you to function in the way that you have a right to function yeah. as a human being. Um, I think that that's when it, it starts to be a big problem. And, and for some people, you know, the answer is to get individualized one-on-one -on -one therapy. But for other people, there are other things to do. There are other things that can be done. Again, these group kinds of treatments can be very helpful. So one of the, one of the things that um, I find that, I, that I, I try to do and I advise other parents is that, um, parents in particular, is take your kid to the masjid a lot more so they don't feel like, because you, it's easy, it's not uncommon for your children to be the only Muslim children in their school mm -hmm. or the only Muslim in their class. And it, it can, as someone that grew up in America and have been in that situation, not just, you know, the only Muslim in the entire school when I was in um, high school um, in Massachusetts, but also one of t only 10 black people in a school of a thousand kids. Like that can feel very isolating. So mm -hmm. yeah, I do absolutely. agree that, um, so I agree that definitely being around other Muslims is, is helpful. And so I guess from the question that I have around that is that, is it just being around them or should we start like really initiating conversations for people to talk about it? Because one thing that I notice is like that I do get with the Muslim sisters who try to do something once a month, but we don't talk about like anything that's going on. We just try to make, you know, small talk. Is it more helpful to just try to ignore it while you're there or to actually have well, conversations around it? Well, I mean, so, so there are multiple layers to what you, what you just said. So first I will, let me just write down some of the stuff so I don't forget it because I want to talk about the sisters meeting that you talked about. Okay, so 
should the, should your take your kids to the mosque more? Yes or no? You know, it's it's your decision how you want to handle it. My individual experience may be different than your experience, so I'm just going to speak from my experience, which is that I don't really feel comfortable in a lot of mosques. I go there and I sit in the back, <laughs> and, and you know, like I just people look at me like I'm wanted furniture, and it's like so it just kind of depends like where you go. It depends on where you're at. Sometimes that's not the kind of environment you want your kids exposed to. And so actually in America, there's been a huge movement in the recent, probably like the past six, seven years that which they call third spacing, right? So there's a movie called Unmasked uh -huh. and um, I forgot, Marwa, Marwa Ali. She, she talks about um, this, this phenomenon that's happened where Muslims have felt increasingly uncomfortable in mosques, whether it be because of um, gender inequities or just a lot of cultural stuff that gets brought over um, to America or, or cultural stuff that existed within within America um, that, that gets projected into our masajid that that prevents people from feeling comfortable mm. where they feel more comfortable going outside of the masjid than they do coming into it and so um, I think it's important to promote kids and not just your kids though but you as an individual being in spaces and places where with other people like them mm -hmm. um, where they feel comfortable. So if that is a mosque for you and your kids, then go to the mosque, alhamdulillah. But if that is for some, that is someplace else, then go there. Mm -hmm. the, the point is to connect with people like yourself in a place and space where you feel comfortable. That's a good note. That's yeah, nice. yeah, because not all the mosques, unfortunately, are, are comfortable places for people. This is true. All right? so, so that's my first point about that. And then secondly, um, I think there's, so I'll, Complete disclaimer, I'm a big fan of group work because I, I train in doing groups and I also attend a lot of groups, so I'm, big, I'm part of different groups. And I myself have found this extremely helpful for me to, to help just, there's something about even if it's just being with people who are similar to you and you're not talking about whatever it is, even if, even if you're dedicated to planting a garden together, you know, you're not necessarily talking about the issues that are going on, but it's helpful. Just being in that space, I think, is helpful, and um, I think I, I mean I think that those things though tend to come up. They don't necessarily have to be the point of conversation when you get together. Like together, we're going to sit and we're going to talk about issues that are concerning us as Muslim women. We could do that, and that could work for some people, but but that may not. Just like you were talking about the um, about how when you asked your son, "How was your day?" <laughs> you know, like <laughs> what's going on. If you don't get as much as right. if you talk about something else, right. you know? Very so true. sometimes not necessarily talking about the issue directly or planning a garden together will bring up other things right. as to, oh, well, I'm sorry, I was late today because such and such happened. And right. well, you know, so just creating that space, it's like magic. Mm. Creating that space allows people to congeal and to discuss and vent and interact in a way that is helpful. Mm. So if, if you, want to make that the point of conversation, then sure, make it the point of conversation. If you don't though, that doesn't mean it's not helpful, right? So it's kind of like either way, just awesome. depending on, you, you'll find it, you'll see. If you try to make a group and you call it something, then people who are attracted to that thing will come. So for instance, if you have a group about, um, about Muslim women discussing gem gender issues, you're gonna attract people who, when they show up, wanna talk about gender issues, mm. right? Now that doesn't mean it's not important to other people, it just means they don't necessarily want to show up and talk about it. They may want to talk about it in a secondary way. So, so if you make another group that's about gardening, people who want to garden will go there, but secondarily, other things will be talked about. 
So, so it just kind of, it depends on which audience you're looking for. But inevitably in those spaces, the stuff gets processed. Safe space is the key yeah, word. Make exactly. a safe, comfortable space for people. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. When we, um, so one of, the, I, I, I have been kind of like perusing some of the questions. Um, when we talk about how do we as a community make it less, so one of the comments was, uh, um, one woman said her depression is between her and her husband because she can't even tell her family. Um, how do we make it not, how do we unstigmatize uh, um, mental health in our community? If there's a way to do it, and I know it's bit, I, I can see the challenge already with that question because when we say unstigmatize it for the Muslim community, we have also sub communities that are culturally based, that are you know socially based. So has there in any community? Because like even I think in the African American community, there's a huge stigma to it. So when you has it ever been done in any community? I should well, say, like, how do, how do you unstigmatize yeah, that? I don't, well, I, well, I think that, that gradually, as time progresses, it's, it's slowly gaining, um, getting into people's consciousness and awareness of mental health concerns. So I think that that's something that over time will kind of continue to, to progressively get better, right? Um, in terms of fighting it head on, I don't know that that's wise. And this is, this is my perspective, is that, you know, there are reasons people hold the beliefs that they do. And my, my experience has been there's really no point in trying to pay, change other people's opinions about things. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have your own opinion, they have their own opinion, respect it, that's fine. But, you know, you can, I've, I've actually, as a psychiatrist resident, I remember sitting in a, in a khutbah one day and hearing this, this the, the sheikh discussing mental illness as being the reason that people are mentally ill is because they're not close to God. And, and, and there's no doubt that, that having spiritual involvement will help people with their mood, right? I'm, I'm not saying that that doesn't, isn't an important piece, but, but I couldn't imagine being there and feeling depressed and already and trying to get some kind of spiritual nurturance and showing up and telling, <laughs> being told that you're just a bad person. Right. Sorry, go home. Like, I don't even know why you came here. You know, it's just, so I just, for me, I remember being quite angry, and I actually spoke with him, and it was an interesting conversation um, because I asked him. He talked about many, certain medications being addictive, and you know when people get addicted to things, then it just leads to even more stuff. And, and so anyway, the medication he was talking about is not addictive. And so then I just asked him, you know, well, what is your experience in dealing with people with mental health problems and medications and things like that, just so I can know what your background is? And literally, his ex his response was something like, well, you know, it's just what I hear about in pop culture. And, but, and I kid you not, like that was the response I got, oh and I was just like, okay, and and so then and then he went on to say that he had a family member who had some like some kind of mental illness who got addicted to this very medication that he was talking about in the chuppah, and um, and then he was and I was just you know I think I told him you know that's not really an addictive medication, but but. The point is, is that he's probably going to go on and give another chuppah that says the same thing. I mean, I'm not saying that, that your individual efforts don't matter. What I'm saying is that people have their opinions, and you're probably not going to change them. And there are reasons they have their opinions. And inshallah, you know, even our own opinions over time and experience, our own opinions change. And those people's opinions probably, mm. inshallah, in time and experience, will also change. We don't need to get into that. Because if we do, 
you will be fighting for the rest of your life <laughs> and, and horribly unhappy, probably more depressed than you were when you started. So, so I, don't, I don't know that that's necessarily the way to go. That being said, I think there's still a lot of room for positive change um, and, and increasing consciousness about mental health concerns. So it's talks like these, right, where you're not necessarily pushing up against a force of resistance, but you're opening it up to people who are interested in hearing mm. what you have to say. Mm. Right, so regarding the sister who, um, who was talking about not feeling comfortable speaking with her family um, about depression, they don't need to know then. They talk to somebody who would be supportive. Because I feel like part of what we want from telling people about our situation and part of what we want from our family is support. And it doesn't sound like in that particular situation that if you said something that's like, I'm depressed, and I, that it would be supportive. You yeah. know, that might not work out, right? So I think it's important to respect other people's opinions as well, and as much as we have our own. And so, um, you know, look for support in other places. Look yeah. for support in other places, and inshallah, over time, when you're at a more stable place, you, you perhaps can gradually introduce this to them, but not in a way that would be harmful to you. So I'm not saying back off of your perspectives or back off of change but I think just to respect kind of that there is a force there and that people have opinions and it's not our job to change them and mm -hmm. to just to kind of go to the point to, to those places where there is the the openness mm. it's good for us yeah which is very true and, and and sometimes you have to really focus on yourself yeah. um, even when you felt like somebody was supportive and then they said something that that showed you that they weren't then you okay we can change direction and not go to that person anymore. <laughs> I recently had that experience and kind of like the the person, I found out the person was like anti-therapy. I'm like, oh, okay, we're not going to talk to you about the fact that, you know, people in my family have therapy. That's my decision as a yeah. parent. And now I know that that's not something that you should have a conversation about. <laughs> right? So I think this, it really is about kind of like changing directions. So, um, now that we've kind of like had the openness of the conversation and I encourage you to share this video for sure because it is a conversation that we need to have. Even if somebody doesn't talk to you, that's the great thing about Facebook is that when you share in social media in general, even people who won't necessarily talk to you about it, they may watch the video and it's gonna help open the conversation. So let's, let's, um, let's kind of wind down with treatment and mm. how when, what types of treatment are available? When do people, um, what should they do to seek treatment? And, and how does that process generally work? Well, well, it's, it's, it's gonna be a little hard for me to start with treatment because before you get to treatment, you have to talk to somebody about it, right? Okay. You have to approach, you'd have to approach someone else. So if you decide that, that you would, that this is a problem that you would like to have addressed, um, by a practitioner, who, a mental health practitioner, then it actually, you know, what the making the first phone call is one of the most difficult things to do. It is absolutely just the most terrifying thing sometimes because it's all of a sudden, like you said, talking about, um, talking about, I think it was your daughter having depression and putting it out there for the first time was like, whew, now it's real, mm -hmm. you know, now it's out there. And so I think calling somebody and making that first phone call and saying, oh, I want to be a patient or a client, you know, it all of a sudden makes it real. Like, wait, this is for real? Are we kidding? You know? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's hard for people to do. And there are entire, there are entire lectures about the first call. You know, there's so much that goes into it 
that I would just say, you know what, don't overthink it. Because there is so much thinking that could go into making the first phone call. <laughs> just, there is a lot of thinking that could go into that. So just, I would talk to people. So I, I'm probably picky because I'm a psychiatrist, but, but I'm just like, no, I don't want any and everybody talking to me about my things, you know? So I think that that is a respectable perspective. Um, and so I think it's important to go into the community that you know of the people who you're comfortable with and ask around. Ask around about, oh, have you, for people who you're comfortable discussing it with, ask around. Also, there are websites like um, psychologytoday.com, um, where they'll list mental health providers, mm. and you can read their profiles of themselves and see what perspectives they come from. Some people are more medication oriented, some people are more social systems oriented. I'm clearly more group therapy oriented. You know, some pe people have kind of their, their chosen things that they're really interested in. Um, and so reading about them, becoming more comfortable. A lot of them have pictures. You can see the person that you're dealing with. They don't have to be Muslim. I think this is a common misconception is that they have to be Muslim. They don't have to be Muslim. That being said, you know, it, it is not, there is a reason, just like uh, I was talking about respecting the other people's opinions about mental health. Like I, there is a reason though, that people have these kinds of hesitations about using non-Muslim providers or using non-religious providers. It's because within our mental health system, it is highly secular. That is the, in my psychiatry training, that is what I saw mm. predominantly. There are not many religious people at that point in time, maybe in 10 years, right? There are not many people who have this kind of openness to spirituality and religion. Among psychiatrists? Um, you know, I can pro, um, psychiatrists is probably the best, um, I think I can speak more accurately about that. Psychiatrists, yeah, among okay. psychiatrists, it tends not to be as common. That being said, there are many, but you just have to find them. So I think that, that going into a situation, it would be an important thing to talk about. To say, you know, this is something that's really important to me, um, and I find it as a means by which I feel better, and you know, bring it up. I think it's important to bring it up and kind of gauge the other person as to where they are. Mm -hmm. Because um, by and large, many psychiatrists don't have that kind of spirituality um, connection. But some of them do, and honestly, like I've I've been I've been um, in contact with many psychiatrists who do, and so what you'll find is that if that's what you're interested in, that's what you'll draw to yourself. So don't go in expecting that they understand your spirituality, um, but don't go in accepting that they're completely not open to talking about it, right? And and so you know, just be a little kind of like going shopping. <laughs> you got to know what you want. And once you know what you want, it's more easy to find it. Right? So you want somebody who's going to be open to listening to your ideas about spirituality and God and about your kids who's non-judgmental and and once you know what you want, you can go in there and say, "Oh, that one looks good." You know? So you can kind of like but I think it's important though to keep your to keep your intel, your intellect going too as you're going in. Like, don't go in expecting that everyone's going to be totally open and everyone's going to be totally fine. Because you know what? They're not. They're humans just like everybody else, and they've got their own issues that they're working on. And we respect those issues, and they'll figure them out. They don't necessarily need to be your therapist, right? And so you you go in and you figure out who it is that's going to be a good fit for you, and you go with that. So go armed. Is mm -hmm. what I'm saying. Go armed, but go. Right. Mm -hmm. Go armed, but go, and be open enough to listen to what they have to say. And then secondly. I would say that um, I don't really mean go armed. Don't don't go with any weapons. I, I'm not promoting violence. It just occurred to me that perhaps that was not the best thing to say on, in a public room. Don't, don't really go with any. Go armed with your intellect. Armed with your intellect. Don't go armed. Violence is not right. Okay.
Let's go on. Okay, okay. All right. So second. <laughs> second. start with that start with that and go from there and if you find that you do need medication or that medication would be helpful for you to kind of get to a place where you want to be then be open to that too right so I'm, I'm not gonna quote the hadith but there is this general there is a hadith which I'm gonna misquote if I try to quote it but there's this general concept that in the world Allah allowed for disease to exist but he also made the cure and we have this we have this kind of um, religious duty to find the cure to, to whatever it is that we suffer from or, or people who we know may suffer from. Um, so, so I think being open to all modalities of treatment mm -hmm. is important, mm -hmm. uh, not being closing ourselves off because we think that somehow it, it may be um, going against our religious tradition, but and actually, you know, the Prophet when he was sick, he sought treatment, right? right? He was very um, vehement about doing it. I think that what's important what, one of the misconceptions that I find often around that is it, uh, it, it says that um, for every disease, then there, there is a cure. Mm -hmm. And people take that to mean like, oh, Allah created a cure, so it must be an herb that grows out of the ground. It's not like a literal. It means that the cure exists. The cure may be talking. The cure may be an herb. The cure may be a medicine that Allah allows a doctor or scientist to discover. So, like, it is a very general thing. I think that that's, that is actually a common conversation that I have with people around particularly depression. Like, even when I when I talk to people like, oh, you just have to change your diet and you have to, you know, take this supplement and don't you? For some people who don't have like a real issue that may ha be helpful, but if medication is what you need, then you need medication. That too can be the cure because the law gave people intellect to figure out if you put these two chemicals together, it can help with this. <laughs> so I think that it's, I, I just wanted to Absolutely. make that note that it doesn't always have to be like a law made it literally go come out the ground. Herbs are not the cure to everything. <laughs> But that being said, I'm a big herb person. Mm -hmm. I think herbs are very helpful. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I think herbs are very helpful. But but like you're saying, it's um, it's being open, right. being open to whatever it is that Allah has put in within your capacity to get right to 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 use that to help treat you because that inevitably was part of the plan. Whatever yeah. whatever is <laughs> available for you to use um, when, to help yourself. When now you talked about um, psychotherapy in general, so in in terms of what type of person should a person should receive, what's the kind of like, is there a difference between looking at somebody who has, say, um, a master's in social work versus a psychologist versus a psychiatrist? Does it matter kind of like who you? Well, it matters and it doesn't matter. Um, so it depends on what you're going for. So those people, they each have different types of training. Right, so, um, so I'm a psychiatrist, so I went to medical school and then I did a psychiatry residency. And in my psychiatry residency, I learned a lot about psychotherapy, I learned, I learned about medication management, I learned about social systems and how they affect people, about group therapy, so I learned a lot of different modalities of treatment in that. And so I consider myself competent in doing, in doing those modalities of treatment. Um, psychologists, they go to graduate school 
and they also learn about group therapy. So more of the psychotherapy and not the medications, right? So group therapy, they learn about psychological testing, which can be remarkably helpful. They learn about different forms of psychotherapy. And, and so they tend to be, um, do psychological testing and, and, and psychotherapy, right? And then you have, um, so social workers, and there are different levels of social workers. They, they train also in psychotherapy. Many of them do group therapy. And, um, and they train in social systems. So they, if you need to get somebody, get somewhere or go somewhere, um, for instance, use some social services, they're also very good at that piece. Now, social work is an extremely kind of diverse degree. So some social workers will not do the social piece at all and they'll do only psychotherapy. Some people do only the case management piece. And so, so there's a lot of diversity to that. Um, I'll also go back and talk about psychiatrists, which is that there's some psychiatrists that straight up their whole practice is medications or their whole practice is psychotherapy, or they only work in the hospital. And so within each of these that I talked about, there's always some variety, right? So I think to make it easy, um, medical school, no medical school. So medical school was the psychiatrist, no medical school was, the, was psychologists and um, social workers, okay? Psychological testing, psychologists. So this is really important for kids when they're, if they have learning disabilities, trouble at school. Um, also adults do psychological testing as well. It helps figure out some adults have ADHD, um, and just helps figure out other things. So psychological testing is only psychologists, and then the social workers do social systems and therapy. Mm. I mean, and again, everybody can do therapy. Okay. Right, right. I saw something about APRNs. Okay. Um, Can you destroy it? I think it was up. Something about APRNs. Did I, did I miss that? Oh, maybe I missed it. Can, can you go down a little bit? There's psych nurse practitioner. This gives you where this therapy not a good match. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. So I agree with that comment. You can always change the person. So I this is perhaps not. It's a little bit crude, I think, of a <laughs> of a of an analogy, but I use it anyway. Which is that think of therapists like mental health, like shoes. Like you go to the store, you know what kind of shoe you want. You think you know what kind of shoe you want, right? And then you walk in and you're like, that shoe looks good. So you try on the shoe and it doesn't feel right. So then you just, you put it back in the box, you thank it for its time, and then you move on. Mm. Right? And so, and you, <laughs> and then you, you know, so. You are Zappos. <laughs> you can choose a different shoe. <laughs> and then you move to the other shoe, you know? And then you, and then as you, as you gradually go, you'll find the shoe that you, that you want, that fits you the best. So don't expect people to, to necessarily fit you the best, mm. right? Go in and figure out what the fit's gonna be. Don't take forever doing that. Um, you know, maybe like one, two sessions max, and then keep going okay. and find a good fit for you. I think the, the reason I, I use that example is because I think sometimes when we go in, and the reason I gave so many warnings about going proverbially armed <laughs> is, that, is that, you know, sometimes when we go and we get a negative interaction the first time, we never go back. And so this is why I give these kinds of warnings, not to scare you, but more to just prepare you that it may not go well the first time and that's okay. It doesn't mean you're not supposed to go this way. Just do a di use a different person, try on a different shoe. It doesn't mean you weren't, you're supposed to go home bare feet. You try a different shoe, mm -hmm. right? And so, so try it in this way with this idea in mind of the flexibility that, that maybe you just need something different. Absolutely, absolutely. So what, do you have anything in particular that we want to um, leave people with, thoughts? Yeah, we want to just leave people to keep thinking. One thing that I would like to leave people with is um, have the conversation. So a part of this was, for me personally, was when I see that there is a 
a response to a particular topic, that it is something that a lot of people are concerned about, I try to have the conversation because I think the conversation is what opens up to possible solutions. And so again, I'm, I am going to actually share the video <laughs> again. It's important that we have these conversations so that we can start uh, talking about it. And I think that we, in the Muslim community, we have to first talk about it. Uh, one of the things I, I, I labeled this the elephant in the corner, right? If an elephant is in the corner, everybody in the room know that the elephant is there. Just nobody wants to actually talk about it. But once you recognize the elephant in the corner, you may be able to actually help that elephant. Maybe he's stuck. Maybe he's sick. Maybe he's trying to find the door, right? Mm -hmm. And once you show him the door, you have a whole half a room available that you can make use of. Yeah. So I think that that for me it was, a, was the metaphor around the conversation that we need to talk about it so that people can find solutions. What really struck me again is a, a couple of weeks ago, um, a, a young boy, I think he was about nine or 10, he actually committed suicide because he was being bullied in school. It's a young Muslim boy. And that should never, it, it should never happen. That's to me that really it, like hurt personally because to think of this young man who was in that much pain, which had to be going on for a while in order to be in that much pain and didn't have any other solution. So we have to talk about the solutions to this because it can get better, but we have to talk about it. Yeah. That's what I would leave with. Yeah. You know, and thinking about what I'd like to close with, I, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. Um, that's a very unfortunate situation that happened to him. Um, but what, what strikes me also is that whatever, whatever comes to us in our life, whatever it is, whether it be that we get very depressed or our, our son, daughter commits suicide or whatever it is that comes to us in our life, uh, it came to get us to a place where we're supposed to be, right? It came to kind of get us to where we're supposed to be. And some people, I, I try to stay away from saying that it came for a reason because I think that that has the potential to be interpreted as, well, I'm a bad person and so it came because I did bad things. And, and so I try to, I, I don't usually use that explanation because to me, I find it less helpful, but, but that it, it, it came to get us to whatever it is that we were meant to do or we were meant to be in our life. So whatever situation that comes to us, whether it be like somebody dinged our car and then we got mad and then we went and we reported it and then all of a sudden there became this change in policy about, you know, so it was something so small as to so many things that are really, really rock us and shake us, um, that it all comes for, for a higher reason and to get us to affect that higher reason and to get us to that place. Mm. So I think that, that, that that's my closing comment. One question on here that I did want to have um, repeated is someone asked what was the website that you, that you mentioned? Psychology, to look up a psychologist? Oh, you know, do I know the exact address? I don't, but you know, I think it's called psychologytoday.com, but if you go to Google and you put psychology today therapist, It'll, it'll come up and it, it actually has a designation for each city that you're in. So there's a New Haven, New York City, wherever it is that you are, put in Psychology Today on Google and it'll bring it up just very, very easily. Excellent. Okay. 
Awesome, so we are going to get ready to log off, but continue to have the conversation in the comments below. I wanna thank you, Farah, for coming. Thank you for having me, this awesome. was so enjoyable. Thank you all for listening. I am, I'm, I was just excited that I actually live in the same town as Farah, and I'm like, oh, we could do a Facebook Live! <laughs> so that was awesome. I also, too, want to just let you know that we are gonna have even more conversation on December 22nd inside of our um, Facebook Facebook health chat so you can find that in the events on this page and we're gonna have over a dozen Muslim um, health professionals tune in to that and we're gonna talk about a variety of issues so certainly find the event click that you're going to come so you can get the notifications that we are uh, what we are doing and December 22nd but I'm sure I'll see you before then all right so assalamu alaikum have a good day <laughs>